Hi there, this is Liberty DeVito, and you're listening to Michael's Record Collection. Hey everybody, welcome to Michael's Record Collection, episode number 64. I'm really psyched about this episode. I can't wait to bring it to you. I am talking on this show with a living legend, Liberty DeVito, drummer for Billy Joel for 30 years. Could not wait to talk to him. I've always been a big Billy Joel fan, but I wanted to talk to Liberty specifically about the Nylon Curtain album, which is about to turn 40 years old this September, if you can believe it. The Nylon Curtain is a special album for me for reasons we'll get into. We also talked about his excellent autobiography, We talked about his involvement in the Hired Gun documentary, which is also very good. We talked about his current bands, the Slim Kings and the Lords of 52nd Street, his trip to the Soviet Union with Billy Joel's band, Uh, but mostly we talked about the Nylon Curtain. So my sincere thanks to Liberty. I had so much fun talking to him, and uh, I I kept him way longer than I told him I would, and (laughs) I'm sorry about that, but it was just so much fun, and we were having such a good time. Uh, Before we get to the interview, just as a reminder, you can follow me on social media if you want, at Mike's Records on Twitter. Also, you can catch me on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Michael's Record Collection. Check out michaelsrecordcollection.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. And if you want to support this independent podcast, visit patreon.com slash Collection and get involved for as little as $2 per month or find a level that works best for you. You can also write to me at michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. Let me know how I'm doing. Give me some feedback. I want to hear from you. All right, let's get to that interview with a living legend, Liberty DeVito. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I am extremely excited about this guest Liberty DeVito, who was with Billy Joel's band for 30 years, sold, I don't know, over 150 million copies of albums. Uh, he's with also with the Lord of uh, Lords of 52nd Street and the Slim Kings. Liberty, thank you so much for your time today. Yes, it's great. Great to be here. Actually, it's great to be anywhere. It's great to get out these days. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I were talking offline before we started recording, and uh, you, you just got over COVID. Thankfully, it was uh, a very... A mild case for you, and I'm glad that things are, are on the mend for you. Well, thank you. I think that they say that everybody is eventually going to either get it or, you know, it's a, it's a luck of the draw. You know, mm-hmm. I travel, I get on airplanes with the Lord of the Second Street. We, I eat in restaurants. I do all this kind of stuff. My wife is a stickler. She wears the mask all the time. She goes to work in Manhattan. She works at the uh, uh, stock exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, she comes home and brings it home. I'm better off being away from home than I am being home. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think we all probably will either have had it and not known or we'll carry right. it around or any, you know, something like that. But I, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad that everything went okay for you. You and I will talk a little bit about your book. Oh, you got it. Very nice book. I've been enjoying this and uh, I have to admit I'm not finished with it yet. I'm up to the River of Dreams section, so I'm pretty far into it. But uh, not all the way through just yet. So there's still surprises uh, awaiting me. It's called uh, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, forward by Billy Joel. And uh, we will also be talking today about uh, this album, very important album in my life. 
the nylon curtain, which is uh, turning 40 this year. So uh, lots to get to. Unbelievable. 40. I know, right? <laughs> so we'll start with uh, you. You were in Billy's band for a long time. You and um, uh, multi-instrumentalist uh, Richie Canada, guitarist Russell, Russell Jabbers, and uh, bassist Doug Stegmeyer. You guys really formed the core band for Billy Joel for you know most of his biggest albums. And uh, you kind of went from playing small places to getting this gig and, and seeing the world. That must have just been an incredible transition for you. Well, it was a mind blower. Actually, uh, myself, Doug Stegmaier, Russell Jobbers, and a, a fellow named Howard Emerson, who played on Turnstiles with Billy, were a band called Topper before mm -hmm. we got with Billy. Uh, Doug Stegmaier got the gig. Uh, he went out to California on the Street Life Serenade tour. And on that tour, Billy decided he wanted to move back to New York, and he wanted a New York-style drummer. I had met Billy when I was younger. Not really met him, just like passed in the dark. His band, The Hassles, and my band, The Rock Workshop, played in the same club. Mm -hmm. And um, so we knew each other by listening. You know, he knew how, my, my drumming. I knew his singing. And he played Hammond organ at the time, didn't play a regular keyboard. So um, when he asked Doug, do you know any drummers? And Doug said, well, you know the guy, <laughs> you know. And uh, so Topper eventually became the Billy Joel band through the album Turnstiles mm -hmm. with the uh, inclusion of, of Richie Cannata on sax. Yeah, you are also a member of the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, so congratulations for that. Thank you. And uh, you are one of the stars of the excellent documentary Hired Gun, which uh, I saw, I think, probably about six months ago. One of the periods where we weren't in the office and I was just gobbling up all of the, the different rock documentaries that I could. And, and uh, it was really, really well done. So uh, I don't know what kind of of um, feedback you've gotten for it, but it's probably one of my favorite music documentaries. Well, you know, it's funny. The thing I don't like about it is what I'm wearing in the documentary. Because <laughs> I get these things, emails and calls and everything like that. Hey, we're making a documentary. We want to come over and film you. They come over to interview you and then they run out of money and nobody finishes the documentary. Well, this one actually got finished. And I can see everybody like Rudy Shazar is, is wearing his leather jacket. And, and you know, uh, uh, Phil X looks great with his long hair sitting in the chair. I'm on a rocking chair. Whoops. I'm on a rocking chair with my shorts on, you know, and uh, and you know, just a ripped up T-shirt, whatever, because I thought it was going to be one of these documentaries. But. It had gotten so far and so much press and and people that I couldn't believe watched it actually saw the thing. I was at a, a, a at um, a show, a Broadway show, David Burns show that he had on Broadway mm -hmm. called uh, American Utopia. And Larry Mullen from U2 was there. So I introduced myself to Larry Mullen. And the first thing he said to me was, I was just watching Hired Gun. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's like, oh my God, everybody saw this thing. Yeah, yeah it's great. Uh, and, and, you know, I didn't even think about what you were wearing, but very natural and uh, I'm sure you were comfortable. So that's important. Well, that, that, that's what a lot of people say. <laughs> look, you look very natural. <laughs> yeah. So um, your book came out in 2020, published by Hudson Music. Yes. What, what sort of prompted you to take stock and, and look back at your career and, and think um, uh, this would be a good idea to, to put everything down in writing. My uh, 
first thought was uh, I started actually writing a, a family history for my children. You know, I have four daughters, mm-hmm. and I wanted them to know where we came from, and I wanted them to know what their grandfather did in World War II, and all that kind of stuff, how they grew up. And then I thought, you know, when I, when I parted ways with Billy, I thought, you know, I'm going to write things that happened with us on the road. Now, I could have taken the route of throwing a lot of people under the bus because I was a little pissed at what happened. But um, I I stood there and thought to myself, you know, I'm going to look at this from Billy's point of view. I'm going to stand in Billy's shoes. The man had a career for 50 years so far. I mean, it's still going on. You need to change in this kind of career. That's why bands just fall off the map because they don't change. They sound the same. They don't make personnel change, you know, and he's Billy Joel. He, he's, his name is on the marquee. He could do it what he pleases, you know, to mm-hmm. continue his career. So I looked at it that way. And after seeing all the TV shows like uh, uh, American Idol and uh, The Voice and all that kind of stuff, I wanted kids to get the idea that, no, it doesn't happen that way. You have to pay your dues. That's why I started to list all the bands I was in and what happened during the times I was in those bands. Yeah. You know, so so the book is actually a, a story of, of me and how uh, these people came from Italy. And then two generations later, one of their offspring is playing with one of the biggest single artists ever. How did that happen? You know? Yeah. And. The book says how it happened. Yeah, and it is. It's it's a very detailed uh, description of of your family even before you came along. And uh, I think a lot of people would love to have that kind of background information on their families. I mean, I I don't have it, and and you know the uh, the genealogy apps don't really get you there. Ancestry.com doesn't really tell you all of those little details. It really does have to be largely, you know, sort of handed down from generations. Is that how it happened for you? Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough to start the the, uh, family thing when my parents were still alive. My dad died at, it was 91. My mom, she was 89. And my aunt Millie was, uh, uh, my dad's sister was still alive. So, I would hear stories from my father and then my aunt would join in. You know, I, had, I had the cassette tape. I taped on my cassette. And, uh, you know, when I asked my aunt about my father, she said, oh, he was bad, Lib. He was bad. He was really bad. You know, my father would never say that. Ah, Millie, I wasn't bad. You know, they go back and forth like that. It was great to hear that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, to learn about my uncle in World War II, the man I'm named after, that that was all really interesting to me. What happened to five brothers went in and only four came back, you know, mm-hmm. it's a part of history, you know. It's a saving Private Ryan type thing going on there. You know, it wasn't until I saw Private Ryan that I actually, I called my dad and I said, I just watched Private Ryan. I can't believe what you did. He goes, that whole thing was true. The only thing that wouldn't have happened was they wouldn't have sent three guys to go find one. Mm-hmm. They would have always been in radio contact. So that was the only part that was not true. But everything else, you know, fighting. He used to tell us about fighting with the bayonet on the front of his gun when they ran out of bullets and, and trying to fight a tank off, you know. And, and you saw it in Private Ryan, you yeah. know. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's amazing. I, I, I tell you, uh, watching that is... Uh, should be it isn't obviously because of what's been going on in the world but it should be a deterrent for any yeah. kind of conflict uh but 
you know, that's humans just can't get enough of fighting with each other, I guess. It's just, they just constantly fight <laughs> and over stupid things. Nobody's fighting for good things, you know. Yeah. I love the line you put you put in your book every person hears the same song but pulls something different from it because there's it's so true that you get in these uh discussions online about uh you know what's the best song on an album and 10 people have 10 different answers and, and it really is all to to how how that resonates with you it's just like hitting i suppose a drum head different ways yeah well um you know it, it, it's funny when when people say to me now the guy that plays with Billy, uh, Chuck Berge plays with Billy now, great drummer. And they always say like, but he's not you. He's not. Well, the reason for the book is to show you that how I grew up makes what you eventually become. You, yeah. you know, that your, your surroundings, what you learn, what happened to you when you, when you were a child, you know, you go to a shrink and you have a, a, a problem about something. And, and, you know, if somebody's angry all the time, they go way back to your childhood. You know, I, I love Ringo Starr, and I copy him when somebody wants to play a Beatles song, but I can't sound like Ringo. Ringo is Ringo. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how they grew up. They grew up in Liverpool. You know, Elvis yeah. is Elvis. He grew up, you know, in the ghetto, Tupelo, Mississippi. They, that's where all that stuff comes from. Motown came from the ghetto, you know. Yeah, it's in you. It's a part of you. Exactly. Yeah. And no, no two people have that same thing unless maybe they're brothers or something. But um, I'm glad you brought up Ringo just now because that was bringing me to my next point. Your your mentors that you call them in the book. Uh, Ringo was the first, but then uh, was supplanted by uh, Dino Dinelli of the Rascals, which I have to say, I haven't heard a lot of people. You know, I, I'm sure a lot of people respect him, but you were the first person that really has championed him as the guy that you really looked up to that, you know, as far as that I've come across. For two reasons. One was because when I saw him play live, they, they were the first band I ever, well, they were the first band because they opened up for the birds and that was the first concert I ever went to. And uh, oh, I realized at the time with his actions and the way he was playing that the drummer could be as much a focus as the lead singer is. Because it was always the guys up front that were, were in focus when you see bands. And uh, his energy and the way he played, it was like he was having so much fun. And it just like poured over the stage that, that everybody else was having fun because he was having fun. Just the way he did things. <laughs> yeah. But also when I was 16 years old, I, I met them. You know, they played at a school that was next to Oz. And I met them. And the way they treated me was like I was a cousin of theirs. You know, all the rascals were like that. And, and I thought to myself, wow, you, you can be normal and do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were normal. Yeah. You That's know, great. later on when I, I interviewed Ringo, 
for modern drummer at, uh, uh, live on on uh, on on the internet. And I, I told Ringo, I said, you were so kind to me. It was unbelievable. He said, oh, you must have caught me on a good day. <laughs> they were always funny, you know. I played with Felix for like a year and a half, and he was funny all the time. They're great guys. Uh, you also mentioned Ginger Baker as one of your mentors. What did you, what did, what gravitated you toward his style? See, I believe uh, that there's, there's, when people say somebody is a great drummer, they always say it, because he plays really fast, man, this guy was so fast. It's unbelievable. Like you see a lot of guys now online that play really, really fast, you know? Well, we're all born with different muscle fibers, you know, twitch fibers, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and my thing is like, why, why can't a, uh, you know, you get a, a baseball player and the ball is hit. He's playing the outfield. He catches the ball on one bounce and he throws it. One bounce, it's in the catcher's mitt, and he greatest baseball player in the world, right? But if he gets on the mound, you know, the pitcher's mound, he can't throw that ball at 95 miles an hour straight over the plate. I thought he was the greatest baseball player in the world. What happened? So <laughs> with these different uh, fibers, the twitch fibers, you get the fast guys who have more fast twitch fibers and the, the slower guys who have slow twitch fibers. And Ginger Baker was one of those that was – a he, he loped like a like a, a, a hyena at night, you know. That just his whole lope was unbelievable. You find a lot of the R and B drummers are like that too. They 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 got this slow groove. They don't play fast. And I believe that John Bonham, for me, was an a, an R and B drummer that was behind a gigantic kit that made him sound like a rock drummer. You mm -hmm. know, he really didn't do anything fast. He had that one thing, blah, 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 that one thing that he did all the time, but he, he played steady and the consistent, the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. It really is about serving the songs. That's one thing that I've always admired about your drumming on, on, especially on Billy's albums is that you play just what is needed and nothing above what is needed, but yet you do it in a style to, that makes people listening think, how did he think of that fill right there? That's not something I, I would have thought of right there. Well, I'm, I'm not taught. You know, I, I never took lessons. I took maybe one once. <laughs> but uh, so I'm, I'm not confined to a box, you know. Hmm. Uh, so when I was learning how to play drums, I, I would listen to the Beatle records and I'd get lost because I didn't know where I was. So I would learn the lyrics too. And I would realize that, you know, Ringo does fills in between when Paul or John stops singing, you know, or to take the band into a more exciting place. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I have a great uh, friend, Dom Famularo. I'm sure you probably interviewed him too. He's a, a ambassador, global ambassador to drums. And, uh, he tells me what I do, and I'm like, "You gotta be kidding me! I'm actually doing that." <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it, it just I'm I'm free to create. I'm free to do whatever I want because I'm not in that box of like, "Oh, this is how it should go. This mm -hmm. is how I was taught how it should go." Yeah, you don't have a a, a basis of you know. It's, it's just like building blocks of anything else, and you fall back on those building blocks when you know when all else fails it's like well what am i supposed to do here and, and instead of doing what you what you feel you should do there right well i told billy once i said you know i'm gonna 
I'm going to go and, and take lessons. I'm thinking about like going to Berkeley maybe for a year and, and studying the drums. And he said, please don't. Oh, please don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> said, okay. <laughs> You were in uh, New uh, New Rock Workshop when you yes. opened for Vanilla Fudge. Carmine Apiece was my guest on on episode fifty. Uh, are you and and Carmine friends today? I know I know the drumming community is very tight. Yeah, me and Carmine are still buddies. Yep, see him Good. all the time. You know, at Nam we see each other. Comes to New York, we see each other. Yeah, you, he, he he now he took what Dino did and put a lot of power behind it yeah you know and yeah. watching that was like whoa that was amazing he, he frightened me the first time i saw him play <laughs> i recently just for the first time saw a video of vanilla fudge doing um uh, i forget what it was i think it might have been you keep me hanging on but he was just so intense and so much fun to watch it was unlike anybody else i've ever seen playing drums and it was it was mesmerizing i mean it was like you, you didn't want to watch the guy singing you're just watching carmine yeah he, he was <laughs> unbelievable i mean they were all great the, the four of them you know yeah and finney martell was the one that gave me the first thing that i i could hang on to you know i was jamming with him uh at, at his uh at his place where he re rehearsed behind the uh, management company when the Detroit Wheels came in looking for a drummer because Johnny B was leaving. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, there's a kid in the back that jams with. And that led to Mitch Ryder, which now I had a name to hang on to. Mm -hmm. When when I talked to Richie Super was the next one. Richie Super wrote uh, Pink and, and Amazing for Aerosmith and stuff like that. And we had our own band. It was called Super's Jamboree. When I... I went to, uh, I talked to him on the phone. He says, who did you play with? I said, oh, New Rock Workshop. I did this, I did that. And I played with Mitch Ryder. And they're like, you played with Mitch Ryder? <laughs> like, yeah, I did. Oh, okay, come on down and, uh, and, and play, you know, come on down and play. And when I was with Billy, after we did Turnstiles, we went out and we rehearsed to tour. And, and he actually goes, did you ever play in front of big, big crowds before? And he goes, oh, that's right. You played with Mitch Ryder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, sometimes that a name will open a door for you, for sure. It was interesting that you, if I read this correctly, if I remember what I read correctly, uh, you played with the Detroit Wheels and with Mitch Ryder, but not at the same time. Right, right. The Detroit Wheels uh, had separated from Mitch. Mitch had his own thing going on with a horn section and everything called the Spirit Field, name of the band. <clears throat> the Detroit Wheels was only, um, the bass player was the only one that still was with the Wheels. They had all different guys. And Rusty Day was the lead singer at the time. Rusty Day eventually was in Cactus with Cactus. Carmine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you've also worked with Stevie Nicks, Carly Simon, Karen Carpenter, Phoebe Snow. What is what is it like to, to go from 
like playing in a band like you you guys were with Billy to being that hired gun for like another solo artist what what is that mentally like for you well it's it to playing with Phoebe and, and Carly and, and those that was all in the studio mm-hmm. so when you're in the studio you know you're, you're there for a reason to to you know enhance the song with your with your drumming as a matter of fact the Carly Simon song uh, was called the wives in Connecticut and we were trying to work out uh, parts when we were waiting for Neil Jason, the bass player, to come. He was flying in from Jamaica. He was on vacation, flying in from Jamaica, coming right to the studio. And he brought everybody gifts. And he brought me one of those little things that you turn, you know, you, it's a little drum and it's got little beads on it. And you turn it and it goes, you can go really fast. Uh-huh. Well, I started to play on that. And that became what, what's on the record. Just like a beat, like mm-hmm. on that thing, but the sound fit the tune so well that that was what we used. You know, if you didn't come back from Jamaica, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> and the wives, the wives are in Connecticut. The wives, the wives are in Connecticut, trying to forget it. How did you get involved with Rick Wakeman uh, for the soundtrack to The Burning? Well, that's weird because I never met Rick Wakeman. I had I had played to the track. The, the producer was putting it together. And um, I, I played to the track okay. with him playing on it. So that that's weird. I mean, it's weird that <laughs> I say I played with Rick Wakeman. Yeah. I played on the same track as yeah. Rick Wakeman. Never in the same room. Wow. Have you ever met him since then? No, never met him. Wow. <laughs> uh, no, not like Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was actually in the room with us. Yeah, you that know, was good. We, we played together. Yeah. So. Did you just record on Loveliest Day or were there other tracks that you did with Paul? We did two songs. It was great. I mean, we did um, Beautiful Night, which came out, uh, was released on the new Flaming Pie box set. Okay. Came out on that. And uh, and another song I don't know the name of it. I okay. can't remember. But um, the greatest part was in between the two songs, we took a break. You know, had a little lunch, and, and then we came back, and he was playing piano on the sessions and singing. And we did like little Richard songs and Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee. It was great. <laughs> the thing that's amazing is like you you are used to hearing this voice coming through your stereo speakers or if you listen to the headphones and then all of a sudden you're there and you're hearing the voice coming through your headphones again, but you look up and it's like the guy's right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's great. It it doesn't get much better for someone from your era than to to play with a beetle, I guess. Oh my God. When it's, it's a dream when you're growing up as a kid, you know? Yeah. You also did uh, some work for the Dead Ringer album uh, with Meatloaf, uh, who we yeah. just recently lost. Did Were you in the room with Meatloaf? Was that? Yep. Yeah, he was hands-on. Yeah. So how Me, was that? Was 
Meat called me up. I got a phone call. It was like, hello? Hey, Liberty Meatloaf. I want you to play on my records. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, we went in the studio. It was great. It was the first time I met David Johnstone. He's on that record, too. And uh, Roy Bitten's on that record. Yeah. And uh, so that was exciting because it was like break, getting away from Billy, you know, and because up to that point, I think I had played with, with maybe Phoebe and a couple of other people, but, you know, Meatloaf had just coming off that big album, you know, so yeah. that was really cool. And he was a great guy. Yeah. Really nice man. he like to work with in terms of being in the studio he, looks, he seems seems very intense like a very intense personality no he was easy i mean yeah. love what we did you know had a few suggestions you know they're all basically like that where they have suggestions but they hire you because they want what you do mm -hmm. you know um only a few are like you know i want it this way i want it this way yeah, you try to tell them, you know, okay, whatever you want, because <laughs> you're hired by them. Yeah, you know, Stevie Nicks. When I played with Stevie Nicks, it was just live. You know, I remember we, she went in the studio once, brought everybody into the studio because she wanted. She had this new song that she wanted to record, and uh, it started with a with a drum intro. Or she sang, and then it was a break, and the drum intro came in, and I played like I played with Billy. And, and the whole band was like, oh, my God, whoa, that's so hard, so loud, you know. <laughs> and I just looked at them and I said, hey, when I'm, when I'm knocking out the door, I want to make sure that everybody hears me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, but there was a battle there. It was the first time it was East Coast me and West Coast them, you know. Yeah. So that was crazy. I, I really felt the difference between the East Coast and West Coast playing. Yeah. And it wasn't until we played Saturday Night Live that uh, – the bass player looked around and he said, wow, I know why you play like you do. Everybody's like you. They run around. Everything's so fast and everything, you know. Yeah, it's New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get into the Nylon Curtain, I wanted to ask you what's going on with the Slim Kings and the Lords of 52nd Street. What, what can fans uh, expect in the coming months from those two bands? Well, the Slim Kings, the Slim Kings is, keeps me current. With, with the music that I play, because the other guys are younger. As a matter of fact, me and the bass player have just uh, started a new thing. It's called uh, uh, Sounds from the Basement. And we're just doing instrumental tracks like that you could use behind um, uh, like a commercial or, or, or movie scene or something like that, mm -hmm. which is really cool. 
and we just signed with this with this uh, placement company. Um, they loved it, and they said, "Yeah, we'd love to take you on." Uh, so there's that, and um, the Slim Kings. We go in the studio, and we we continue to write. You know, you never know when you're going to write that one song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the Lords is fun because it's not really work. You know all the songs. I've played them a billion times over and over again. You know, yeah. it's just keeping up that pace of like what people saw in the seventies. They want to see the same drummer again. You know, now that he's seventy-one. You know, I played yeah. this stuff in my seventies, and now I'm in my seventies playing <laughs> it the same way. You know. Yeah. Well, I've I've been watching some of the YouTube videos, and it's it looks like a great show. Anybody, I've seen Billy a couple of times, and I would. I would not hesitate to go see the Lords of 52nd Street. It would be a fantastic time, I think. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we have a lot of fun. All right, let's turn our attention to the Nylon Curtain, uh, released September 23rd, 1982 on Columbia Records, uh, reached uh, number seven on the Billboard uh, 200 chart. And this was a big album in my life. I got it on my not for not on my 16th birthday but i got it with money that i got for my 16th birthday so it was a couple of weeks after my 16th birthday and it was one of the first albums that i bought on cassette so it was like one of the first things that i could actually portably take with me put it play it in the car i could you know take it with me with my walkman and i played the crap out of that album and um a, a lot of people did apparently and one of the things that I'll never forget is just sticking it in that I had one of those converters cause I had an eight track player in my car. So okay. I stuck it in the converter and stuck the thing in the uh, eight track player to listen to it. Yeah. It was a whole, it was a whole experience, but uh, I remember, uh, you know, Billy Joel's music was something that was when I was growing up in Ohio, it was kind of, Billy was always on the radio. You always heard Piano Man and um, Just the Way You Are and you know different strong uh, different songs from The Stranger and and um, you know various hits from him. So he was always on. But we you know, we were growing up. We were listening to Harder Rock. We were listening to Kiss and stuff like that. And um, but when I got uh, when I when I became aware of the song Allentown, something about that song clicked for me immediately. And I bought that album. So it was it was a special album for me because it was one of those first ones that I had on cassette that I just played the heck out of. And it really was my gateway into the Billy Joel catalog because it was the first album of his that I owned. So now I have them all and uh, collected them over the years. Some of them I have in, in multiple formats and things like that. So <laughs> big, big album. But Liberty, this was the first album without Richie since Turnstiles. Yeah. What was that like for you guys that had become such a tight-knit group? Well, it was strange because, you know, like you say, we were a tight-knit group, you know. Um, and um, Richie left because he had so many other things going on. He had to open his own studio. He, he was playing around now with the Beach Boys and stuff like that. They, they offered him a big deal, and it was like, you know, it was time to make a decision, you know. So he kind of like left and we were left holding the bag for not on the curtain, uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and if you notice, there's not a whole lot of sax until where's the orchestra. I think there's, or the end of the, um, the reprise of uh, Allentown at the mm-hmm. end there. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was interesting because, you know, things happen and sounds happen even 
when someone's included or when someone isn't there. So I think that's why Nylon Curtain sounds more like the the band. Like, you know, Laura to me sounds like the Beatles during the instrumental break. You know, yeah. sometimes I have to think, am I listening to us or the Beatles? You know, <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah. You know, but that was Billy's first uh, like political voice. You yeah. know, Allentown was a big one. Yeah, this was the writing for the album was largely concerned with Billy's generation, what you guys grew up with and 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 what you guys experienced. And it was the first time Billy really put himself in the shoes of others to tell important stories. He's always had like story songs, you know, songs that right. basically told stories. But this one, you know, he he brought light to the plight of the steel industry and, you know, Vietnam veterans and and all of a sudden, even though these songs are catchy and memorable and have great hooks and are well played, for the first time, they also had like real meaning and, and a deeper, uh, like sort of a, it just made you think about them even long after you had, had been listening to them. Right. You're, you're right. Um, Allentown was obvious, you know, about the steel industry. You know, it's funny that originally was called Levittown. He was writing. And he had the whole thing. Uh, well, we're living here in Levittown, and it's not, and then, and he had nothing to say about Levittown. <laughs> then when he got Allentown, you know, it was about the steel budget. Uh, Good night, Saigon. We had worked on it, the album before, uh, which was Glass Houses. We, we he was playing it, but it was more of a thought of World War Two, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until he spoke to a friend of his that was in Vietnam, and um, you know, I think that 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 song is us saying like, yeah, we were very fortunate that we didn't go. I mean, I had to go for my draft physical and I was rejected by the army. And, and uh, a lot of guys, you know, didn't go. And we feel bad that somebody else took our spot and maybe didn't come back, yeah. you know? So I think that's our, uh, like, we're sorry, you know? I, I, I don't know. It's just the, the song that really, I didn't realize how great it was until years later was with the orchestra. It's like, here I am at the top of the heap now. And, and like, okay, I thought this was going to be a great play with music. And where, where's the orchestra? There's nothing here. Yeah. You know, this is my big night on the town. What happened? You know? Yeah. It's interesting too, because as, when I came across this album and I was still, you know, mid teens. So 
just starting to head toward adulthood. Uh, some would say I'm still heading that way. I'm not quite there yet, but they, there's different, there's different meaning or you take different things from the songs at different points in your life. And, and right. I, I hear it now and I think of what you just mentioned and I, I hear it for the, the metaphor that it is and that kind of thing. But at the time it was just like, what it, it just made me think, did Billy just buy play tickets for a play one day and he, he went and there was right. no music. <laughs> right. 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 That, like that kind of thing. But uh, there's some great songs on that one. I like a uh, 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 room of our own, you know, mm-hmm. this was recorded at uh, media sound studios was also part of it at A and R. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they had sold the building, the A and R building. That's where all the other albums were recorded. And they sold the building and they knew they were going to tear it down to build this new building there. So we were looking for another studio and media sound is, was a church that was converted into a studio, but it sounded good. The, the reason uh, the, the, what Billy looks for in the studio is that after we record the song, will all the guys in the band be able to fit in the studio when we listen back? <laughs> some control rooms are very small. Uh-huh. But media had a, a nice big room, you know, okay. and, and a big uh, room that we could play in. And, and like A&R had that, that too. Big control room, big, you know, studio. It was nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're going to get into the tracks a little bit. And I'll start out by just kind of prefacing this. I wrote, um, I think, middle of last year sometime. I ranked my <laughs> Billy Joel albums from, from uh, you know, just put them all in out in two different uh, columns and day two i had my top six so nylon curtain ended up being number three of my all-time favorite billy joel albums and it's it's uh i I mean that's high praise for the albums that that were ahead of it because it's such a great album but i ended up putting nylon curtain just behind turnstiles at two and the stranger at one and it's just really on any given day those three albums could be in any order you know just all very very strong why the stranger one the stranger one i think for me personally is that it's it's kind of one of those iconic albums it's like fleetwood max rumors bruce springsteen's born to run pink floyd's dark side of the moon it's and it, it's not a big gap between these three albums we're talking just you know coin flip territory but right. Moving out, scenes from Italian restaurant, only the good die young. Those were the, those were the songs that I heard on the radio that first told me there's this individual out here called Billy Joel who's making really good music, and and I think being a kid from, I'm originally from New Jersey. I'm an Italian family kid, kid from an Italian family, so songs like that resonated with me. The moving out just sounded like some, you know, sounded like relatives that I had would talk like that. You know, you know, it's funny. It's <laughs> funny because uh, in the book I write how that song was created. You know, and first, first he had the, um, he was singing the melody to "Laughter in the Rain." And I told him, "That's a schmuck. What, what are you doing? You know, it's Laughter in the Rain." So he changed. He liked the lyrics so much that he changed the the melody to fit. Uh, but we used to do this thing where when we'd go to a hotel we, we, in the beginning, we were on a turnstiles tour, we would stay at like a, a Holiday Inn, you know, a, a motel where you would drive up to the rooms and stuff like that. Yeah. And we'd go sit by the pool and 
uh, me and Richie would go out there and we'd be act like we're Billy's cousins, you know, and, and, and uh, I would say, wow, it's really amazing. You've got a pool and everything. Your lawn looks perfect. And Richie would be the, the grandma with the, with, with the napkin under his sleeve. And he'd be like, oh, 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 this is so nice out here. And Billy would be like, hey, you know, you people, you've got to get out of the city. You've got to be breaking your back by staying in the city. It's so nice out here. And that's how that, those words became, became moving out. Mm-hmm. It was really an interesting song because I don't think I'd ever come across that that uh, choice that he made to go heart attack, ack, 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 you know, and uh, Cadillac, ack, ack, ack. That it, it, it's an instantly memorable um, piece of writing, and, and and the way it was recorded is it just immediately stands out from all other songs. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's mm-hmm. a good one. My favorite. Let's see. I would have to say that Nylon Curtain would be like up there as my favorite album. But each one has a different feeling. Turnstiles, because it was the first one. You know, that was the first one. It didn't do well in the beginning. You know, um, uh, The Stranger, because it was the first one to go over the top. What was that? 52nd Street. 52nd Street, that's a good album, too. 52nd Street. Love 52nd Street. It made made my top five. So, yeah, it was... Like I said, it was very close between those three albums, and it was almost it was almost like picking them out of a hat at that point. They were so close, but uh, uh, it's interestingly enough that my favorite song is a song that you kind of called out uh, when you were on the um, Playlist Wars podcast. Uh, one of the songs that you chose was "Summer Highland Falls." times they're the only times i've ever known and i believe there is a time for meditation in cathedrals of our own now i have seen that sad surrender in my lover's eyes and i can only stand apart and sympathize for we are always what our situations hand us and see the sadness or euphoria Hands down my favorite Billy Joel song of all time. Yeah, that's a great one. That was the first one uh, we sat in the studio um, I don't know what song we had recorded already, but Billy said, oh, I got this other song. And he just had like a verse or something to Somehow It Falls. And me and Doug just like gasped and looked at each other and said to Billy, you have to finish that. That's really good. You know? <laughs> well, thank you for telling him to finish that one because I love that one. So let's let's go down these tracks. Allentown was the, the first one to hit the airwaves of his big social commentary tracks. The album's second single, it reached number 17 on the Hot 100. And you played some very unorthodox percussion on this song. Tell me about the, the percussion cases that you played. Well, when you when you hire things from SIR that come in studio instrument rentals, they come in, in when you want percussion stuff, it comes in a big black case. Mm-hmm. You know? So in, in this case, it's tambourines and maracas and all kinds of shakers and cowbells and everything like that. So I had picked them up 
and, and we were looking for that that uh, pile driver sound. There mm-hmm. is one that was sampled that's on there, but mm-hmm. I said, well, "Listen to this one," and and I would jump up in the air and come down with the two cases, and it would go, and it would sound great, you know, tambourines and maracas and everything. So I had to do it during the song. Mm-hmm. My arms were stiff after it because the cases were heavy. I had to time myself to jump before it was time to hit because they had to hit when I hit the floor, mm-hmm. you know. And then when we finally opened the cases, everything was smashed in, yeah. inside. <laughs> just shredded it off. <laughs> yeah. It sounds great. I, like I never... Once I read that part in your book, I went back and listened to the song and I, and I picked it out and I went wow that i would have never known what that was without reading the book so it was great <laughs> and, and funny, it was, things like, funny things like that happen all the time yeah the stranger uh oh no on 52nd street was stiletto mm-hmm. you know they don't do they don't do but the snaps mm-hmm. i had an umbrella and we were looking for a sound to go click you know the click sound like a switchblade yeah so it was ready that day i had an umbrella with me and we went out and set it up i would press the button and the umbrella would go click, you know, it sounded like a switchblade. We're getting ready to record. Okay, here we go. Take one. I press the button and the, it flies off the end. The, you know, the <laughs> umbrella just flies off the end. Done. Wow. Surprising in New York that somebody couldn't find a, a switchblade, an actual switchblade to use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I remember I had I had one of those switchblade combs when I was a kid where you hit, it yeah. looked, like, looked like the knife and you hit the button. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Laura is one of the better drums, not just one of the better drum songs on the album, but one of the best songs on the album. Uh, but I think the drumming on this one is really top notch. Billy drops a rare F-bomb in the lyrics. I understand that Billy tried to not go all the way to the F-bomb and, and nothing else really worked. Nothing worked. That that You know, the whole album is the tip of the hat to the Beatles, you know, because mm-hmm. that's who we grew up listening to. And Laura, I think, comes the closest to a Beatles song. It's it's a real John Lennon tune. And everybody thinks it's about another girl, but it's not. It's about his mother. 
you know, and uh, just the syllables fit perfectly. Laura, mother, you know, and yeah. um, and it, it was really, really, really fun to play that one because we could be the Beatles for that tune. Yeah. You know? The guitar is very George Harrison-esque. And were you trying intentionally to sort of channel Ringo in the song when you did this? Oh, yeah. I do the whole backup. Ba, 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 boom. You know, his fells you know, did them all. Yeah, it's pretty great. I think the song to me always came off as sort of that um, almost like a sequel to All for Lena in that that whole passive aggressive um, codependent relationship type uh, thing, you know, in the lyrics, even though yeah. the song's about his, his mother rather than, uh, you know, a, a love interest or anything. But um, it really just works. And I think whenever it, I hear anybody asking questions about this album, about their favorite songs on this album, Laura always comes up. Yeah, Laura is definitely my favorite one on the album. I just, I, I listen to it and I go, I can't believe that that's us. You know, that's, <laughs> that's one of those songs. Other songs are like, yeah, that's us. Okay, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> but this, that one is like, wow, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. The first single was Pressure, is another great drum track. Uh, although I think the listeners will remember this song when they think of this song, they'll think of the synthesizer part dun, 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 right. because it's just sort of an earworm. It gets in your head. But uh, this is the first single, went to number 20. recall about this did you guys always know this was going to be the first single or did that come out later no that came out later i mean i i remember driving in the car with billy into the city to to go to the recording session and he said i have this song and he played a cassette and he goes don't think of hey hey you know like russian he said don't think of that just you know just listen to what i got here you know so he thought the same thing like that's going to be the the catchy part yeah i just always am amazed at some of the things that get thrown into his songs like just like the time he just yells out pressure in the middle of the song he does it again at the end uh but uh that and you've got the uh you know going back to other albums too you've got all right rico and the all right sarge um is this just stuff that gets recorded when you're in there and then you end up using it? Or do you intentionally put that stuff in there when it happens? No, it just, uh, when he held out all right, Rico, he knew Richie was going to do a sax solo next, you know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, all right. Sarge was me when we were singing the, uh, you all go down together. You know, mm -hmm. I just yelled it out. 
you're all right, Sarge. But they didn't, it wasn't recorded loud enough. So they made me go out and do it again. <laughs> okay. Not exactly spontaneous then what we're hearing. <laughs> no, it was spontaneous to do it, but yeah. I had to do it again because, you know, it's right. like kind of like the flag on Hiroshima, you know. Yeah. First side, one of the best first sides of his entire catalog uh, ends with Goodnight Saigon. It's a couple minutes before the drums kick in on this song. What is it like for you? To have played this live, do you you have to sit there and you go wait for the piano, and then you just just kind of wait patiently for your part to kick in. Yeah, but live, um, you know, this sh the shaker in the beginning. Okay, yeah, yeah. When the helicopter turns into a shaker, so I'm I did the shaker on the record mm -hmm. live. I I use uh, I have three maracas in each hand, and I would do the shakers, you know, through that whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then right before it's time to play drums, I would just drop them behind me and then sit down and play drums. So I was constantly busy doing the song. <laughs> How many maracas get broken over the course of a tour from that? Oh, well, <laughs> they make maracas now that are hard to break. But okay. in the old days when it was just the, you know, the, the, the souvenir from Mexico, mm -hmm. yeah, they, they would break really easily. This song must really resonate strongly for you because you were drafted, as you mentioned. You didn't end up going because of the physical, failing the physical, but you right. knew guys who went to Vietnam. And sure. um, when you heard the lyrics for the first time, what kind of went through your mind about that time? And, and when you and your friends were sort of living every day with the dread of getting that letter? Yeah. Well, I remember immediately getting the letter, what it was like. You know, going to the beach where my father was and telling him he fought the war to end all wars and throwing the letter at him. And he told me, he goes, yeah, go for the physical. They probably don't even want you. You know, just like, oh, my God, I just told a guy who lost his brother in that war that he fought. And he jumped out of airplanes or that he wasted his time, you know. So, you know, there was there was that. I had a, I have a friend, George Christensen, who I, I went to school with. And I, I walked into a bar one day and he had come home from Vietnam and he had ears on a chain around his neck with, you know, Viet Cong ears. It was like, wow, what is happening here? You know, well, my sister married a, a, a gentleman, Bill, and uh, his brother, Nick, was a door gunner on the on the on a helicopter. You know, and he, he told all those stories about how when they didn't see anything, they just shot cows and stuff on the way home. And, you know, it was really like scary yeah to hear, hear the stories and, and and every time i said you know i, I didn't go i didn't get drafted and the, all those vets would always say you're better off that you didn't mm -hmm. you're lucky that you didn't you know yeah it's uh, i think the the tone of the song perfectly captures that sort of shared sense of both hopelessness and brotherhood in a way that it really resonates i That song is is pro 
uh, you know, the guys from Vietnam, the soldiers, like, mm-hmm. like you just said, yeah, was, it was, uh, when they came home, they were people spitting on them and stuff like that. Where Bruce Springsteen had born in the USA, almost like saying that you're blamed for going there and, and you know, uh, you're sent over there to kill the yellow man. And it's, you know, because you're born in the USA, you know, it's like, I, I thought, Saigon with uh, Goodnight Saigon was so much more powerful than born in the USA, you know. Yeah, and and in a more of a positive, like, like we we feel for these guys that went, you know. Yeah, it, that's exactly it. It's an empathetic song. You're you're showing, right. uh, or Billy's lyrics show the empathy for the. This is the stuff that you know. Nobody nobody wanted to go there, but no, you were kind of forced into it, and you had to cope. I guess cope is the best word there. Yeah, it would. It was. Uh, it was a weird time. Weird yeah. time. So, an unusual choice for a single too. But it went to number fifty-six on the Hot One Hundred. It was number one in Belgium and the Netherlands, which is interesting. Did you guys have any thought at all when this was put out as a single? Is like that? Does this make sense to put out as a single? No, I did. I didn't realize it was coming out as a single until we went to the studio. We were recording. Um, the next album. What was the next one? Innocent Man? Innocent Man. Innocent Man was the next album. We're recording that. And somebody, uh, the, the record company or, or the, the uh, place that presses the records sent the single. And they just put it on a shelf because we were recording. Well, I got to take it home. And when I played it, it was so distorted. And I said, I brought it back the next day. I said, you guys got to listen to this, man. It's terrible. They have to fix this, you know. And it's a good thing I brought it home or else they might have said, oh, yeah, OK, just print it, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah I've, I've given the copies to, uh, you know, bars where these Vietnam vets used to hang out and they didn't have it in the jukebox. And, mm-hmm. you know. Wow. Side two starts off with She's Right on Time. And I love especially the tom sounds you captured on this song and the beat that you went with. The drum sound is so clear, so good on this one. When you recorded, do you mic your own drums or does, do you have a tech oh. that does that? How does that work? Oh, the studio, the engineers, they, they mic the drums. There's a lot of mics on those drums. Yeah, I would imagine so. But they just sound so good. I wondered what that setup was like. There's a little slap on there, you know. Uh, yeah, it's funny because a lot of guys, if I do a, a drum clinic, people will say, you know, I bought the same exact set of drums that you have and everything like that. How do you get that sound that you have on the record? I can't get that sound with my drum set. 
and I hold up a picture of the control board and I go, <laughs> you have one of these too? You know? Yeah. How many engineers do you have setting it up? <laughs> right. Right. How many microphones are on your bass drum? Four. <laughs> How long does it take to set up your drum set in a studio to record? Well, I don't set it up, you know, um, like we, we, by the time Nile and Curtin came around and all that kind of stuff, we had techs. Right, right. The tech would set it up. The, the studio guys would, you know, put the mics on and everything like that. So you're pretty much like coming in, sitting down, getting ready to go. Right. But I think for them, I'm guessing that's probably the better part of a day to get everything set up and mic'd properly. Oh, yeah. 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 Then they got to make sure everything works. And, you know, it's like that uh, live, too. You know, your tech sets up your stuff. You mm -hmm. don't touch anything. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're, you're, big, you're big time, Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> but now now with the lords you know i'll go i have a guy that sets up the drum set but um you know i'll do the sound check myself you know mm -hmm. but but the old days now we did you played that's all you did <laughs> she's right on time was your traffic song you guys were yes. big time into traffic at the time yeah i told billy i said right give me a song that you know like starts like when would when he when he when he did uh a colored rain and it just starts uh, uh, colored range thoughts. Uh, yesterday, then the music comes in. You know, uh -huh. well, he had to put that little piano intro in the beginning, but then it's like uh, uh, turn on, you know, just drum thing, and yeah, you know, awesome. Yeah, that was a traffic song. That's a good one. A room of our own is sort of a, a blues rocker. This is a song you said in your book you got i don't want to give all the little secrets of your book but you said that you got lost and then recovered while you were recording this song uh, i did i did uh during the last i can remember doctor in that part i uh -huh. kind of get lost and it turns around and i'm playing almost backwards and then recover and pick the song up again and i told billy i made a mistake could we do it again and he was like let's do it and he went no that's great you know <laughs> Did you have to try to recreate that in the, you know, when you, do you guys play it live? Did you play a room of our well, own? I, I, I think we might have played it once or twice, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. not one of the big ones for people. You know, there's a lot yeah. of, there's some songs you try and they become the go to the bathroom or let's go get a beer <laughs> song, you know? Yeah. And by this time in, in you guys' career, Billy had so many hits. There's really not a lot of room for deeper tracks. Right. I can remember when uh, Stormfront came out and we were doing extremes. I go to extremes and nobody knew it. And you could actually see the lines going out to get <laughs> beer or stuff like that. But once they learned it, you know, as soon as he goes down, 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 it's like, ah. Yeah. Uh, terrific song, by the way. Surprises. This song in your book you called Uneventful 
and it was you basically just left it at that it tells me it's probably not your favorite song on the album no it's not um but it, it is about his um it's a coming of age thing where it's like you know what what's going on here you know mm -hmm. that kind of thing but uh, i i remember the the song just like almost being forced you know mm -hmm. kind of like the the the, uh, the weirdness in the middle of the song the, the little bridge that don't look now it, it's uh, changed yeah it's past friends yeah it's a little different it's a little different yeah. uh scandinavian skies i think a lot of, is another one that a lot of people talk about when they talk about their favorites on this album it's uh you did an interview with 30 days out where you said the song was one of your favorites in terms of your drumming Stockholm city lights were slowly starting to rise And we were strapped against those Scandinavian skies The landing gear came down And touched the Swedish ground And we were Another Beatlesy song. What is it that really captured your, you know, that really clicked for you about this song? Well, when we first recorded it, it was just me, Doug, and Billy on the Hammond organ, mm -hmm. and it was like, I think this is our day in a life, you know, uh, with all the different parts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the part in the in the um, they wanted it really, really big. So I had to play the same thing like three or four times, the same fill uh -huh. three, or, three or four times. And, you know, I don't read music and because I don't write music. So I had to remember what I did, Yeah, you know, because usually when I do something, I don't remember that I did it, mm -hmm. you know, because you do it and it's done, you know. Yeah. yeah. But that one was interesting because it's just different drum parts, you know, on the plane. I'm doing this and then overdubbing, you know? Yeah. That's again, it's one of those things where when I was a kid, I, I didn't know what the song was really about. I was, I was imagining it was some kind of world war two thing at some point. Uh, and, uh, you know, cause it kind of has a little, like a little bit of a military 
um drumming yeah yeah and and then you know talk about the planes and things like that and then it was years later when i realized that you know you guys were talking about some shenanigans (laughs) yeah yeah it was the one night in amsterdam yeah (laughs) i think a lot of people probably have one night in Amsterdam stories, but they don't get to. Yeah. Luck, luckily we were able to walk away from that one night. <laughs> and uh, that was it. That was the end of that. Yeah. You know, we've already talked a little bit about where's the orchestra, the, uh, the decision to put the Allentown reprise at the end is, was a brilliant choice. Where's the orchestra? Do you remember, was that Billy or was it Phil Ramon that came up with that idea? Oh, it's Billy. That's Billy. Like the stranger, you know, mm-hmm. doing the stranger at the end. Yeah. Doing the whistle. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, it was a really nice touch, but also I like the fact that it's, it's a, it's the sad version of the Allentown, you know, melody. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's more maudlin and, uh, depressing i guess in a way (laughs) (laughs) it is it's like you know uh, yeah things aren't going the way you thought they were going to go yeah and it kind of made me wonder about the evolution of allentown as a song because it's it's the subject matter is serious and 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 sad and yet it's an upbeat song it's like the you know melodically it's you know, it's kind of bouncy almost at times. It is bouncy. It's very, very bouncy. But um, yeah, yeah, right. The lyric is uh, is like, mm, you know, I don't know about this, you know, yeah. but seemed to work. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's, but then, that's but the, then the... that led that led the depression of Allentown at the end led to, OK, next album, Innocent Man. There's nothing sad on that record. No, no, there's not. That was uh... as a matter of fact. Which one? And every time I touch the road, and so it goes, was recorded for Innocent Man, but just didn't fit. It was too yeah. depressing. So <laughs> that made it on Stormfront. Yeah. So that's that's our uh, that's our recap of the Nylon Curtain. Fantastic, forty year old album. A couple of other songs I wanted to ask you about while I have you, Liberty, is. Um, Two of my favorite songs, they don't, they're, they're probably not widely known outside of just true Billy Joel fans. This Night and Until the Night are two of my favorite Billy Joel songs. Uh, this Night, uh, sort of a, um, I don't know, was that a Righteous righteous Brothers thing? No, Until the Night. Until the Night's the Righteous right Again, doing that thing where I'm flipping them in my brain. But Until yeah. the Night is the Righteous Brothers thing. And then This Night just two songs that I think don't really get the 
the notoriety they deserve. Just really strong songs. This night, to me, it's the best song on on uh, Madeline Curtin. I'm not my own turn. Like, see, I just didn't flip. Yeah. Uh, it's the best song on Innocent Man. It's catching. Uh, yeah. Besides uh, Easy Money. Easy Money. I love Easy Money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, This Night was always my favorite. I mean, just because he did, you know, like the the people in the 60s and, and 50s did, where they took classical pieces, like the, uh, uh, they did that song in uh, Love is Concerto, Concerto. Mm-hmm. You know, how gentle is the rain, which is a classical piece. He took pathetique and did the this night is mine. Da, da, da. It's a classical piece, mm-hmm. you know, which I think was brilliant what he did, you know, and it modulates and does all these great things. It's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love, I think he sings the hell out of that song it does. and, and, uh, and I like the lyrics. I, I just, I love the, the message in it too. It's, uh, Hey, don't forget he had a new girlfriend. <laughs> that's true. Every, it, it, that's been, uh, the inspiration for many a good song, I think over the right. years. <laughs> yeah. Well, what does she do? Oh, she's a model. Oh, a model. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The top model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Billy did all right for himself. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Especially going out with Elle McPherson before. Yeah. Christy Brinkley. I know. Uh, it's a good thing he was a musician. Elle McPherson, <laughs> uh, Christy Brinkley knocks at the door and, and you say, I you can't come in now. I with somebody. And it's Elle McPherson. <laughs> <laughs> No, I can't imagine that. <laughs> well, uh, my wife would be pissed. <laughs> uh, but I did get a kick out of the, the the little anecdote that you had about you guys getting all uh, dressed up when you knew you were going to meet Christy. <laughs> it was funny because it was like, we don't usually dress like that, you know. And um, Billy came in and asked us, so why are you guys dressed like this? We knew she was coming. Why are you guys all dressed like this? And Russell just as quick witness as he is says because my tux was in the cleanest yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah what's the what's the plan there you're gonna you're gonna swoop her uh off her feet away from billy no, we just wanted to, <laughs> you know make an impression but, yeah you know and then she turned out to be just a regular person you know mm-hmm. we just had fun you know i used to tell her how ugly she was all the time because i love <laughs> when you say that because nobody ever says that to me <laughs> yeah, I would imagine probably not. Uh, that's great. That's a great story. You know, speaking of, of the rest of your time with Billy, was it strange being kept on for Stormfront after Russell and Doug were let go? How was that for you? Russell, Doug were let go after the bridge, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, and Stormfront, Phil wasn't there either. 
So yeah. that that was weird that Phil Ramone wasn't there. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Mick Jones produced that record. Yeah. You know, from Farna. And uh, it took time to warm up to Mick, you know, mm -hmm. because he, he was waiting to. It's funny because they all wait to hear that Liberty DeVito thing. You know, I don't know what it is, but it's a thing. I guess I got anyway. And it wasn't until we did the Down East Alexa. After we did the Down East Alexa, that's when he said, that's the Liberty DeVito I've been waiting for. And that's another one of, of Billy's socially conscious songs where he's talking yes. about the plight of the Long Island fisherman. Yep. Yeah. Always it's a good album, uh, Stormfront. Yeah, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. It does have a different sound to it without Phil Ramone at the, right. at the controls. But, um, you know, sometimes that's not a bad thing. And, uh, I mean, it's you can't argue with it. There were so many singles on that album. So many. So many singles. Innocent Man had the most, though. I, I can remember being on tour with Billy and sitting in the car with him and with, as we're touring. And they're going to release another one from Innocent Man. And he goes, why don't they just stop? We've got to do another one. We've got to do a new album. Yeah. yeah. And he's not one of those artists who had a lot of extra songs laying around to use as B-sides. He had to use no album tracks. No extra songs. Yeah. No extra songs. But I know he was a great writer. You know, back when we first started doing the Turnstiles tour, we did songs from Piano Man and Street Life Serenada. Mm -hmm. and those songs were written so well you know it was just a, just that he didn't have the right energy in the studio he was using studio guys you yeah. know not guys that were like you know like him from long island street guys that just let's go let's go do it man come on plow it here we go <laughs> yeah what was it like for you guys as a band to step into the mtv era it was weird because you know I don't I don't think we were a very good looking band <laughs> so <laughs> you know that was weird I mean when we did uh, 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 still rock and roll of me and you may be right that was kind of corny yeah. you know and you got to play the songs over and over and then what's the other song uh, longest time oh my god I see that on TV now once in a while. It's like, oh, how did we ever do that? You know? <laughs> uh, it must have been interesting for your friends and family to see you, though, in, in that way. Um, you know, they, they, don't, they don't go on tour with you, so they're seeing you at work, but it's not really what you do. It's, you know, 
sort of play acting and miming and things. Right. It was, it, it was, it's strange making videos. It wasn't fun, you know, because yeah. you got to do the same thing over and over again, you know? Yeah. So that making videos wasn't fun. The whole, the whole MTV thing. I remember uh, a lighting designer, his mother coming up to us and she said, when the album came out, I'd love, she's right on time. But when I saw the video, it ruined the song for me because <laughs> she saw it in her head. Yeah. You see things in a whole different way. Sure. Now they're telling you what it's supposed to be like. Yeah. And, and kind of, that's what I liked about early MTV is that the videos, a lot of them made no sense. They didn't have anything to do with the song. Right. And, and, and a lot of them just to do them cheap were just concert footage. So a lot of that stuff was, it was cool as a music fan to see your favorite band. What do they look like? You know, what are their mannerisms? How do they dress? That kind of thing. And here they they're doing just completely nonsense things. And then they became bigger budget and bigger budget and having scripts and, you know, and then the song is only like this much of the video. That's this long. Like when, when Michael Jackson did thriller, for example, he changed everything when he did that. Yeah, it really did. And it was, uh, and then of course MTV went downhill to the point where it stopped showing music basically at all <laughs> yeah the worst part about the videos was when when the long hair the glam rock came out their hair was growing longer and Oz was falling out <laughs> at that time yeah you know? yeah that's tough did anybody at any point come to you guys as a band and say you know why don't you guys all dress the same or something like that or was it always just understood you're just gonna all have your own style no well with with the bridge album when we went on tour for the bridge, they they bought us clothes, actually, that okay. only lasted for a little while because, you know, you wear them out really fast. <laughs> yeah, I imagine, too. But uh, that had a look. That whole, had a whole look that the bridge was the same color as the album cover. My mm-hmm. drums were that blue, you know, color. So it had a whole vibe to it. Gotcha. You got to do an incredible thing when you guys went to the Soviet Union, it, it was not a place that anybody from the West ever went. Um, it was like, it was unheard of really. And you guys went and you put on some shows and obviously that trip left a big mark on all of you who went. Definitely did, it definitely did. Um, you know, I was afraid to go in the beginning because you know, they, they, we had to sit with these guys, these people, from the uh, um, uh, the embassy in Washington, and they told us what we could do and what we couldn't do. It was like this is the first time in our career we're being told what to what we can do and what we can't do, which turned out to be we did whatever we wanted to do over there anyway. You know, you're not supposed to take pictures of railroad uh, railroad stations and buildings and stuff like. We were clicking everything, you know. <laughs> uh, um, but it it was so interesting to see what we always thought was the enemy, which today actually almost is the guy that runs it. But like I say in the book, it's not people against people, it's government against government. Mm -hmm. And you see it clearly today that you get a maniac in your office, like we just had the last four years of the presidency, you know, that maniac. I mean, who knows what it would be like today if he was still there? Oh my God, it'd be horrible. Yeah. You know, 
So did you ever get a chance to go back there? I know you've met some of the people over here that you met on that trip. They've come over and they've, you know, stopped by and said hello and that kind of thing. Did you ever get a chance to go back to Russia since then? No, never went back. But um, when we did the documentary of 25 years later, how it affected us and how it affected them, uh, I did my piece while the translator for Billy at the time, Yako, uh, what was his name? Smirnov was his last name. Uh, whatever. But um, everything's called Smirnoff over there. Okay. It's not Yakov Smirnoff, the, the comedian. No, though. no, that's the comedian. <laughs> no. What the hell? Alex? Something like that. Anyway, I forget. So you cut this part out that I forgot. Anyway, the translator, <laughs> Billy, over there, uh, he listened to what I was saying. And I had said that, uh, you know, when, when I had dressed, you know, I wore an American flag on my chest. I had American flags on the drum set. Uh, Mickey Mouse pins on and all this kind of stuff and real American. And Billy mm. actually asked me to tone it down a bit, you know. So he thought, you know, they would see the ugly American, you know, just up there flailing away. <laughs> so when he he when I came off, he said to me, he goes, no, they didn't see that. When they saw that flag on your chest and you playing drums, they saw what being the ultimate freedom you have to do that kind of thing that you're doing and be able to just do what you feel where we can't do that. We live in a box. And he says, if you ever come back and do drum clinics here and come back and you're teaching or something or, or telling people about drums, you, you have to remember that our drummers, everybody's in a box and they're afraid to express themselves. You know, so that was something that was really like interesting to, you know, to hear from him. Like, mm -hmm. So they're just keeping the beat. They're not really being able to play by feel and stuff like that. Yeah. They're not creating, you mm -hmm. know, because they don't know how you know, everyday life is not create. You know, they're in a box. Yeah. They have to do certain things. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can do this. It's weird. It's all conformity and it, and it leaks into their art. Yes. Yes. Yeah. In classical music, they, they, we, we did this thing called the, the uh, musical ring. Billy did it by himself, where they try to tear down the uh, rock musician. You know, it's actually a boxing ring that you get into with the, with the narrator, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Billy played a Russian piece, a classical Russian piece, and included the piece that the Russian government had taken out because they thought it was offensive or whatever to the mm -hmm. government. And he played that piece too. And then when we left Russia, we found out that that show was discontinued after that. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course that trip also spawned the song Leningrad later yeah. on. And, on, and I got to tell you, I can't even sing along with that song without tearing up. I, you know, I find that as I get older, emotions just come out during songs. And that's one of them that I, I, I struggle to get through without, you know, cracking a little bit.
Yeah, that's one of my favorite songs because I went there with him and experienced the same thing that he did. I remember those guys he's talking about, you know, the clown that made his daughter laugh and all that kind of stuff. And then when we were doing Stormfront, I sat next to him when he was writing the words to it, you know, putting it all together. Then we went on to record it and it, it ended just like, uh, till we came to Leningrad and it just ended. And I remembered a piece that he had that he used to play all the time on the piano, but he played it really fast. I said, Billy, here's where it goes right now, slow. And it sounds like a Russian piece. Yeah, I really, to the point where I wondered if that was something that he borrowed from Russian classical music. No, that was something that he was playing with for a long time. Wow. All right. Uh, promotion time, Liberty. Uh, what's uh, what's the touring uh, or the show schedule like for the, the Lords of 52nd Street this summer? You got some shows going on? Oh, yeah. We're going to Texas. We're going to Oklahoma. We were just in L.A. and Las Vegas. And we're starting to really move around. I mean, now that COVID is, well, now that I've had it, I can go wherever <laughs> I want. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's starting to loosen up in different places. I mean, you know, New York is getting tight because it's starting to everybody's getting it everybody's eventually going to get it but you know not as bad as when it first happened so um yeah we're starting to uh, go to florida and all that kind of stuff yeah wow. so it's a fun it's a lot of fun awesome where can people find out more or find out if you're playing near them facebook uh, lords of 52nd street that's okay. where we are good deal yep. uh you've got your drum line your your line of drums it's not it's <laughs> No, is that bad? <laughs> Liberty. That's, that's the that's one. That's the drum. That's the drum logo. It's not mine. It's a company from England. Okay. Liberty Drums. I met them at the NAM show, walked past them a few times. I was with Mapex at the time. Great drum company. But a, a friend who worked at Mapex had passed away. And I thought, okay, it's time to move on. So I said, you know, my name's Liberty and you're Liberty. Why? Don't we get together? They okay. were like, it sounds like a plan. <laughs> you know? So, so just, just a coincidence thinks, of names. Yeah. But people think it's my, yeah. my drum line. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're huge, man. You should have your own drum line out there. Yeah. <laughs> just something else I need. But. <laughs> and, uh, and you do, you work with some kids too, right? Little Kids Rock. Little yeah. Kids Rock. Tell Little me about that. Rock. It's great. It, you know, we, we, uh, it puts instruments in the hands uh, in the schools that the curriculum, music curriculum had been taken out. You know, it was started by this one guy, Dave Wish, who was a teacher in California. He um, saw kids hanging around after school and he said, look, I'll, I'll give you some guitar lessons if you, he plays guitar, I'll give you some guitar lessons if you, you know, promise you stick with it. Started out with 20 kids. I think like 750,000 kids have gone through Little Kids Rock now. And um, it's just a great, great thing i get to play with a lot of great people we have the big galas and stuff you know yeah awesome sounds great liberty devito thank you so much for your time today and, and taking the time to help me dissect your work on the nylon curtain and all throughout the your career and also the book of course from hudson music is it's right here i just dropped it but it's right still good life right. billy in the pursuit of happiness this is great i'm enjoying the, the heck out of this and i i 
I only read about 10 or 12 books a year. So one of them's yours. <laughs> you can get it on uh, Amazon too. And uh, it's also on Audible. I actually read the whole thing on that was wow you did you did your own audiobook that was tough that was tough <laughs> i bet this is a lot of long days how long did it take to get through that 55 hours wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> i believe it i believe yeah. it liberty thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you i wish you nothing but the best of luck with the book and with slim kings and with the lords of 52nd street and everything you've got going on well, thank you. And it, this was great. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon, at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>